Fair question. So when I was a kid, I was pretty serious about dance. I was one of those like obsessed little ballet girls. By the time I was 13, I was training six days a week. There was a really surprisingly good ballet school on Vancouver Island, which you wouldn't expect, but it was only about a 45-minute drive from the ferry terminal to Denman Island. So it was it was hard, but it was doable. So I got a pretty good dance training on Vancouver Island. And then that was really what I wanted to do. Um, I was homeschooled when I was a kid, which will be relevant in just a second, because um, my, my parents were these sort of back-to-the-land hippies which I don't mean in any kind of derogatory way. They're great. But yeah, keeping your kid home from school was just kind of like the hippie thing to do when I was growing up. So I stayed home from school, which gave me a ton of time to read and write. Um, there was a period of time when I was, I want to say about eight or nine years old, when one of the very few requirements of the curriculum was that I had to write something every day. So that got me in the habit of writing from a really early age, just these little short stories and poems. And to be clear, like they weren't good. You know, it was, uh, I wasn't like some kind of prodigy. Um, yeah, but you know, I was, I was training as a dancer and that was what I wanted to do. When I was 18, I auditioned successfully for the School of Toronto Dance Theatre, which is a conservatory program for contemporary dance in Toronto. Um, went there, got a fantastic training in contemporary dance, graduated when I was, I want to say 21, um, danced for a couple of independent choreographers and realized I was kind of sick of dance. So I, I kind of fell out of it. Um, around that time, I had a boyfriend in New York City, which is probably the single most cliched reason for moving to New York City, but, you know, got a lot of New Yorkers here. Maybe the third most cliche, but Maybe, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. It's like Broadway, then whatever, then boyfriend. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, so I came down here to live with my boyfriend at the time. We moved up to Montreal together because he was also Canadian, and the rent was literally half as much. Like, it was crazy. Um, I did not have a great time in Montreal, uh, broke up with a boyfriend, missed New York City desperately, so came back down here by myself. And, you know, through that whole period, I'd stopped dancing, which kind of begged the question, well, what comes next? I had graduated with a mountain of student loan debt, so I had, uh, you know, I, I had no thought of going to college. That just felt like a crazy idea. Can you give it, me some, I'm sorry, can you give me some mm -hmm. uh, dates and maybe ages? Or, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so... Yeah, so this is all happening when I'm like 22, yeah, um, yeah. in 2003-ish, you know, around that period. Um, yeah, so came back to New York, and by that point, I was probably 23-ish, maybe. I think I just turned 23. And I was just kind of figuring out, trying to figure out what to do with my life. When I was in Montreal, I'd started writing a novel, kind of just was with this thought that, well, writing something I really love. This is something I've been doing all my life. Maybe I could take it seriously and think of it as more of a career than a hobby. So yeah, by the time I came back to New York, I, I, was, uh, I was pretty deep into the first draft of what eventually became my first novel, Last Night in Montreal. And um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I need to ask, I've been to Montreal, again, I grew up in Jersey, um, and mm -hmm. Montreal was always a rite of passage when we turned 18, So, because yeah. oh, you can drink when you're 18, so me and mm -hmm. my idiot friends, we would get in a Jeep, drive five and a half hours directly north from New York City mm -hmm. to Montreal. You said you didn't like it, can you maybe explain a little bit what was about the city that maybe you didn't like at the time, or what was about it? 
you know, it was real. book called Your Last Night in Montreal. <laughs> right. Uh, and, you know, in fairness, like, bear in mind, my whole experience there was colored by a breakup. So, you know, none of us are at our best when we're 21 um, and recently broken up with. But the thing is, you can visit Montreal as a tourist without speaking French. The same is not true of living in Montreal. Okay. And I was just really naive. I thought I could get by with English. I grew up in a part of Canada where nobody speaks French. Like I'd heard it spoken in passing maybe a half dozen times. Um, so yeah, I just didn't know the language at all. And because I was homeschooled, I, I never studied it. So I got there and yeah, um, it was difficult to get by in English. I started learning French but to be honest, there was a lot of anti-English sentiment there at the time. And I don't know if that's changed at all, but walking by anti-English graffiti on my way to work every morning, like that's an experience that can make you not particularly want to learn French, you know, kind of a, works against it. Um, so it this was 2003, right? Yeah. Yeah. This is a while ago. It Which might be completely different. If people can remember, I mean, this was the time when we were trying to call French fries freedom fries. Um, right. Good point. Yeah. You know, so it was an interesting yeah. time where specifically French American politics were not at the best. Um, this was after the immediate aftermath of obviously 9-11 and things like that. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Interesting that you're bringing this all up. And that's why I ask about times. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, you know, I had a rough time there. Um, also, I'd fallen in love with a totally different city. Like, I really just wanted to get back to New York. So it only lasted about five months. The good thing, though, um, we were talking about cold weather earlier. The good thing about spending most of a winter in Montreal is like after that, nothing else is cold. Like it's fine. <laughs> you know? So yeah, you wrap a scarf around your face and then the condensation from your breath freezes into a sheet of ice against your skin. Like it's hardcore. You said you started thinking maybe this is something you can kind of take seriously. Are you still dancing at the time? How are you supporting yourself living in New York City, writing a novel in your early 20s? Uh, just an endless string of day jobs. Um, I did some retail in New York City. And then I was an administrative assistant for a really long time. I want to say like 12 years or something like that. Um, and that's the kind of job where if you're good at it, and I was, that can move you through a lot of industries. You know, the work itself is not that interesting. You know, you're reconciling Amex statements. Um, but you do end up in interesting environments. So I worked in an architecture firm for a while. I, uh, I was working for an executive coach, this organizational psychologist. That was really interesting. And then the last place I ended up was the Rockefeller University in New York City, which is, it's a really interesting place. It's all science labs. Mm -hmm. And that was a great day job for a writer. I stayed for years. It was not quite full-time, and it didn't pay that well, but the health insurance was spectacular. Uh -huh, <laughs> so, uh -huh. yeah, I was there until a year after Station Eleven came out. I own a dog walking business, which allows right. me, like you're saying, it's a great job for a writer. Um, yeah. I write before work. I write after work. You know, I don't have to bring my work home with me. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. And you, so you were writing all these novels that entire time you were working as an administrative assistant. Yeah, I was. And, you know, the pay wasn't great, as I mentioned. Um, but if I supplemented it with, you know, a small press advance every two or three years, whatever that worked out to, then it was completely doable. So, yeah, it, it was really good. Um, and, you know, my criteria for a day job at the time, and it sounds similar to you, 
it was work I didn't have to bring home with me. You know, it, it was not stressful. It was not too stressful to write after a day at the office. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so again, I'm again, I'm going to pick your brain for my own amusement. Yeah, sure. Um, how, how did the first book get out into the world? And then the second part of that question is once that first book was out, why did you decide to write a second book? You know, what, what was the motivation going forward? Was it purely joy or was it something at the end of the day, you put your head on the pillow and you're like, I don't want to work at a desk anymore. I want to be a writer. Um, it was purely joy. It was also a longing for some kind of sense of direction. And like, I'm not dissing full-time career administrators at all. That's serious work that keeps every organization on this earth going. Um, it <laughs> but it wasn't, it wasn't enough for me. Like I wanted, I, I guess what I missed from dance was the sense of having this kind of artistic outlet. And that was really important to me. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so the way my first novel got out into the world, I, it took me about four years because I wasn't taking it that seriously in the beginning. But eventually I had what I thought was a good first draft of my first novel, which was hilarious in retrospect because I could change so many times. Um, once I had that draft, I Googled New York City literary agents who represented literary fiction. And I just kind of worked my way down the list. Yeah. Um, I was sending out the query letter and like three sample chapters. And usually I get rejected in about 48 hours. Like the turnaround was amazing. Um, again, administrators, you know, they, they make the world run. And this is the, the mid 2000s you're doing this? Yeah. Yeah. Mid 2000s. Uh-huh. Um, right. Like 05, 06, somewhere in there. Um, yeah. So they, the rejection was really fast. Usually the 13th or 14th agent who I queried was this woman, Emily Jacobson at Curtis Brown in New York. She requested the full manuscript, so I sent it to her. And then she rejected me too, but she did so with the most detailed editorial letter. And it was so helpful. It was basically a list of problems that she had with the book. Um, You know, I didn't understand why character X did that. I didn't quite understand this plot element. Why did this happen? Why did that happen? This felt a little thin. And I remember reading the letter and thinking, well, there's no guarantee of representation here if I take her advice, but worst case scenario, I'll have a better novel. So I spent six months revising based on that letter. And then I sent her the manuscript again, and she very kindly agreed to reread it. And she took me on as a client, which was just the most amazing feeling. Um, When I say she was kind of old school in her way of doing business, she came by it honestly. She would have been about 84 years old when she took me on. She'd been in this business for a very long time. So she's a dinosaur in a prehistoric business. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, A lovely dinosaur. (laughs) Prehistoric business. We Um, all love dinosaurs. We do, yeah. So her way of doing business in those days is she would send the manuscript out to one publisher at a time. So yeah, so it took about two years to get rejected by every single publisher in New York City and then like into the tri-state area. And then finally, um, I got an offer from this tiny press I'd never heard of called Unbridled Books. And they were fantastic. Um, My editor there was so good. It was this tiny little outfit in the Midwest. Um, Yeah, my editor was great. I kept writing because I loved writing. Uh, Because it had taken so long for that first book to sell, I had a second book, like almost ready to go. So that came out a year later. Um, Yeah, so I stayed with them for three books and they were 
they were fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point in, you know, with your writing, I'm assuming if you're working at, you know, a day job, you're, you're probably somewhat of a routine kind of person, right? I mean, you get up probably the same time, go to sleep. Were you having, or did you develop a routine in your writing in those years? You know, for me, writing has always been whenever I can do it, Okay. Um, which I actually think, you know, for any writers listening to this, I think is a really important practice for getting any work done. But I feel like it's easy to get a little bit precious about like when and where and how we write. Mm-hmm. If you can just grab 40 minutes at Starbucks on your lunch break, probably not during a pandemic, but, you know, in theory, um, you'll get a lot more done than if you have yeah. to do it at a particular time and place. Yeah. So, yeah, weekends were intense for me. Um I would write like all day, Saturday and Sunday. I would try to carve out at least an hour or so before and or after the day job during the week. Okay. And yeah, I just kept plugging away at it for years. And then when I wrote Station Eleven, I felt like I had a somewhat more commercial premise than I had with my first three books. And it seemed like a good moment to try to make a change to a bigger publishing house. So I did. Um, the book was successful in a way that still feels totally unreal to me. You know, it's like, um, it's like going, it's like Alice in Wonderland, like, you know, stepping through the looking glass into this upside down world where people actually read my books. Um, and I guess because it didn't feel quite real and because I'm from a working class family, it took me about a year to quit my day job after Station Eleven came out. It was just so terrifying to not have that safety net. So yeah, I was an admin until 2015. Mm-hmm. And you said that was the fourth book. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And again, I'll go back to the, you know, I guess the routine kind of thing. At this point, you know, you, you kind of know, I'm assuming your style in a sense of, you know, how the work's going to get done. You know how long it's going to take you to roughly write a book now. You know, in theory, but um Yeah. So the first novel was kind of an anomaly because your first book, it's like, you have no idea what you're doing. That took about four years. Uh, Books two, three, and four took two and a half years each. The Glass Hotel took five years to write. It was, uh, it was kind of an epic project. And yeah, there there, there were partly logistical reasons for that. Um, I gave birth to my daughter after the Station Eleven tour. And like having a baby is wonderful. It does not speed up your writing, I found, uh, believe it or not. Um, and then also the uh, the Station Eleven tour itself was epic, which, you know, I'm grateful for all of it. And also I was traveling for like a year, so it was hard to get work done. Did you like that? I loved it. And also it was difficult. Uh-huh. You know, it's kind of a delicate point because getting to tour at all is a crazy privilege. That's really unusual. So I always... You're saying. Yeah, exactly. For an yeah, author. If you talk to a touring musician, the last thing they would tell you is it's, it's a privilege. Yeah. They're like, <laughs> I'm in a van with five guys and I haven't slept in three days. You're, you're so. at them, trust <laughs> yeah. Me. I live on Doritos. Yeah. Um, That's what yeah, for, about. Right. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. For authors to have your publisher send you on tour is really rare and special. Um, it's possible to be grateful for extraordinary circumstances and simultaneously miss the people you love, you know? So yeah. So being away from my husband and then, uh, my daughter later on was difficult. And so I guess to get to the fifth book, you know, The Glass Hotel, um, did you have it all in your head when you first started that book? Or was it, I mean, you know, how, why five years? Yeah, okay. So if we're being honest here, two reasons. Uh, one reason was purely logistical. You know, baby plus travel equals not that much time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other reason is probably psychological. This okay. is the luckiest problem in the entire world. And, you know, all the disclaimers here, I'm not complaining. 
Um, but if you have a very, a book that does really well, like Station Eleven, and that's the breakout, the book that follows is maybe always harder to write. You know, for the first time in my life, I was sort of aware of this invisible audience looking over my shoulder. Mm. So there was this pressure, which I want to be clear, was entirely self-imposed. My, my publishers were very chill, which I appreciated. Um, but yeah, there was this pressure that I think slowed down the writing. So it just kind of took forever to figure out what the Glass Hotel even was, you know, let alone, say, a structure that works. Um, we had Janet Fitch on, and I've told this story many times. Um, I don't know if you know Janet Fitch. Uh, she, when she wrote the book White Oleander, um, it was a huge success. She said after that book, and to, you know, to paraphrase her, she was completely fucked up. She couldn't write anything. And she tells a story on the podcast about how she'd been working on this epic, you know, 900, this after the next book. Yeah. This epic 900 page, you know, historical fiction thing. And her editor calls her one day and she's like, you know, the editor's like, you know, where are you at? And Janet says she had a, a breakdown. And she pretty much was just like, I can't do this. I, I, you know, she would go into her office and like lie on the bed and cry. You know, oh God, that's yeah, awful. Yeah, yeah. And eventually, eventually, but that's what she was talking about. She's like, you have this, you know, invisible audience now where you were writing yeah. for three or four books. No one knew who the hell you were. And then all of a sudden, boom, now you're here. Um, yeah, it's bands call it the sophomore slump when the first record hits and then second record, you know, they have to... Yeah, it's a different thing. And like you log onto Twitter and pe random strangers are like, time for Emily Mandel to publish another book. And you're like, oh God. <laughs> and, yeah. and that's the thing. And you had mentioned this constant access. How the fuck do you even write anymore? No, I know. Yeah, you've got to be so disciplined with social media. It's uh, it's such a time suck. You know, I actually like Instagram because I've always loved taking pictures. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's a place to put them that also, you know, because we are business people, um, that also like promotes my work. And it's a, it's a place to connect with people. I like Instagram. I find it much more civilized than Twitter, which Twitter is absurd. Like, I don't... Uh, I don't get it anymore. Like, I remember, you know, this will make me sound like a dinosaur, but when I started using Twitter at the request of my publisher in probably 2008 or something crazy. You answered my question right there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've been on Twitter for way too long is the well, short answer. <laughs> at the request of your publisher. Yeah. At the request of my publisher. Yeah. Um, you know, when I started it, I remember it being fun. You know, like I'd log on, I'd chat with random booksellers all over the country and all over Canada about books. It was... It's like stepping into a cocktail party. Yeah, it's just become, um, I think the tone has changed over the years. Yeah. And yeah, um, to be honest with you, it's not clear to me that it helps. Like if I've seen your name all over my Twitter feed, am I more likely to buy your book? Uh, I might be, but what will really make me buy your book is if a bookseller tweets that your book's good. Like that's a real solid recommendation. Um. Yeah, I, I'm just not convinced of the value of social media. And I had a really interesting conversation with a friend of mine who's a freelance book publicist a few years ago. And she said, in five years, the true mark of status will be having zero social media presence. I find that fascinating. Um, I have not found my publishers to be particularly receptive to that idea. I've, I floated it once at a meeting, got like a thousand yard stares. <laughs> but, um, you know, I do believe it to be true. I think... Yeah. And, you know, it, these these platforms, in fairness, I think they are literally addictive. You know, the dopamine rush that you get when people like your tweet or whatever it is. Um, so it is difficult. But, you know, 
yeah, so I was really active on Twitter for years. And then when I was on tour for Station Eleven in, hard to put a year on this, but I want to say like 2015, um, I remember I had this kind of unpleasant uh, altercation on Twitter. And it was just kind of like irritating. And I thought, I'm just going to go off Twitter for a couple of days. And in those two days, I read two books. Like all of a sudden, this whole horizon of time opened up around me. And I had I had so much time to do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I've kind of drifted back from it and drifted away from it a couple of times since. But it's not a place where I want to spend much time. All right, cool. So then obviously, you know, the next book blew up a little bit for you. Well, I mean, Yeah. Okay, so The Glass Hotel is a weird one because the hardcover publication date was March 24th of last year. So, you know, we're making publication plans. I have this epic 25-city, three-country tour lined up for the spring. And you can tell where the story is going. By the end of February, I'm starting to think, okay, well, there seems to be some kind of a pandemic situation. So I guess maybe I shouldn't bring my daughter for the West Coast tour which, you know, is heartbreaking, like terrible not to see the grandparents. But, you know, you can't keep little kids from sticking their fingers in their mouth on the airplane. So I was like, all right, maybe I'll maybe I'll change the plans for that. And yeah, it just uh, it unfolded so fast, didn't it? You know, by by February, the coronavirus was in Seattle. Um, and in New York City, we knew it was coming, but we kind of didn't believe it. Um, but yeah, you know, we went into lockdown on... For us, it was March 12th. I think it officially started the following Monday. And yeah, you know, canceled the tour one week and one country at a time. So that 25-city tour turned into um, like weeks of Zoom events, which was actually way better than I thought it would be. Mm-hmm. You know, we were all in such shock in those first weeks of the pandemic. New York City was hit so hard, so fast. So in the spring, you know, late March into early April, it was just constant ambulance sirens. It was hard to work. And yeah, there was a week in April when 700 people died every day. It was crazy. Mm -hmm. So during that time, when we were in really total lockdown, not seeing anybody outside our three-person household, it was actually wonderful to get to log onto Zoom and talk to people. That was... That was kind of amazing. Um, Yeah, so the virtual tour was way less creepy than I would have imagined. Everybody wanted to talk about Station Eleven for obvious reasons, which I totally understood. (laughs) You know, I uh, I drew the line for about a week. I was like, I don't want to talk about pandemics. I don't want to want it to seem like I'm somehow using this pandemic to move copies of Station Eleven. But that was all anybody wanted to talk about, and it was like fine. I had to surrender. Um, I was happy to talk about it ultimately. So yeah, just this weird experience of this uh, virtual tour all spring. And I can't believe it's been a year. You know, it's uh, that we're coming up on, yeah, it's already February. It's crazy. Yeah. Emily, this has been an absolute pleasure. Um, where can people find you? What's your handle? Yeah, um, look me up on Instagram, Emily St. John Mandel, all one word. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you. 